0: From Washington, D.C., and around the world. This is Government Matters
1: Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government every wednesday we focus on defense i'm your host francis rose the 2020 edition of the navy's rim of the pacific exercise is underway tonight COVID's limiting activity to a third of the countries and a fifth of the personnel that were scheduled to participate originally usni news reports this year's exercise will run two weeks but it won't include any ashore events the navy's information warfare research project will get a 400 million dollar funding increase Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development and Acquisition, Hondo Gertz, approved the increase from $100 million to $500 million. Defense News reports the project focuses on prototyping autonomous systems and cyber, cloud computing and data analytics tools. The Defense Information Systems Agency will beef up its cloud offerings to support remote work. DISA's cloud storage chief, Carissa Landimore says the agency will make its mill drive offering a, quote, one-stop shop for storage. FedScoop reports the agency will replace its virtual environment with Office 365. Small businesses the coronavirus has impacted could get loans from money defense contractors haven't used. The National Defense Industrial Association and the National Small Business Administration will try to convince Congress to move money in the CARES Act so the $17 billion allotment doesn't expire. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force, retired as president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Where was this money originally supposed to go, and why hasn't it gone there yet?
2: So 4003, it was money. It was meant as a loan for businesses and the intent, the 17 billion that we're talking about was set aside for defense industry to help them weather the pandemic storm. It was a loan uh, with the intent of uh, of getting them through these tough times to keep the workforce going and, uh, and be able to continue their business. Unfortunately, it hasn't gone there because some of the restrictions both Congress and the administration put on it is pretty onerous for uh, public companies. And uh, things like uh, the workforce and and how long and how you show it on your balance sheet. It really is prohibitive to have some of these companies take this money because it really hurts them as a business. So, as far as I know, I don't think any of the 17 billion has gone out yet. I know that uh, it. Um, as far as we know, very few companies applied for it, and I'm not sure any of it has gone out yet.
1: What? What has who has to change this? Is this something the administration can change? Do they need cooperation from Congress? Is this something they could do with a quick fix to the legislation that already exists? Does it need to be in the next? What does that structure look like, Hawk?
2: Yeah, really, all they really need to do is recolor the money. So right now it's a loan. It's uh, appropriated from Congress. Uh, so what they need to do is recolor the money and put it into the small business innovation research uh pot and let them use that uh to take sbir to phase two and phase three for already existing embedded small businesses that are doing work for the defense department the the broader the broader
1: question here i think is what does this look like long term this is a fix for a period of time 17 billion on the surface sounds like a lot of money in the context of the defense industrial base it's not and i wonder what your sense is of what sustains the health of the defense industrial base moving forward in order to to keep it where we need it to be when we need it to be there
2: right so the the, our intent here is to make sure the small business industries in the defense industrial base are healthy and this would go a long ways in helping them um because it really is there's there's never enough money in sbir and it gets you know you'll get vetted capable companies that will produce an innovative uh, solution for the Defense Department uh, through phase one, but getting the money to get them to phase two and phase three is a challenge. And this will go a long ways in doing that for small business. On the broader defense industrial base, um, I think all the things that Congress is doing to help the defense industrial base, 3610, equitable adjustments. um, And, you know, in fact, I think if you look back during this pandemic, uh, the defense industrial base has been a, a kind of a good place to uh to, for money to be and, and it's actually responded very well to the challenge
1: who who are you appealing to to get this done hawk who has to do the what's the next move i guess is it just a matter of congress recoloring the money or is there more to it than that
2: no that's that's pretty much it what were what the letter we sent to the to the appropriate uh, committees inside congress and the leadership was Take the money that's already appropriated for 4003, recolor that, and put it into the SBIR program. So, hopefully, in the next stimulus package, uh, they can do that fairly quickly.
1: Does the fact that they're having a, a difficult time agreeing on whatever the next stimulus package looks like impact the timelines for these companies? We've heard stories of some of these companies, you know, one, two, three people working for a company farther down in the industrial base that might not make it by the time uh another stimulus bill's done.
2: Yeah, definitely. Timing's a factor. I mean, it's uh, you know, some of these uh, small businesses are really, you know, living hand to mouth. They're they're mortgaging their houses to make payroll. So the quicker we can do this, the faster Congress can act, you know, it, it's a it's a liquidity, it's ability to pay your workforce and keep things going.
1: Is there a role for some of the, the large companies that rely on some of these uh, subs to help them execute for the department? Is there a role for them to help these companies to at least tide them over somehow?
2: Well, I, there are a lot of the companies are doing it. The in, increased progress payments to big companies as well as how it flows down to the smaller companies, you know, they're doing that. This is really a different avenue. These are uh, companies that have an innovation that's useful to the Department of Defense, That um, maybe isn't on contract yet, maybe isn't a sub to a prime, but they're a great capability that we're trying to produce for the warfighters. So it really is. It's a little bit of a different approach. It's a it's a different part of the supply chain.
1: Is it possible, though, that because of that, we could see an acceleration of the primes that have the money? Trying to outright buy these technologies, or or do other types of transactions to get this technology into their wheelhouses, so this stuff just doesn't disappear.
2: Well, yeah, that's uh, that's certainly one answer, and we, you know, the, for the primes to do that would be a good idea. Um, it, you know, if it works, I guess the challenge and the thing that we're more worried about is um, trusted capital. What happens if players that that you know, for example, the Chinese come in and and give capital to these companies, keep them going. That's what we don't want to happen. So this is uh, big companies or the government keeping these small businesses afloat is really important.
1: You remind me, Hawk, that the next time you come on, I want to talk about that concept of adversarial capital because that's something that was a term that I I would say before the virus we heard a fair amount about. Response to the virus has kind of tamped down the discussion around it, at least to what I'm hearing. And I think it would be useful to continue that conversation. Thanks very much for coming on, as always.
2: Thanks, Francis, and I'd be more than happy to talk about trusted capital and what we need to do to protect uh, protect our defense industrial base. Coming,
1: coming next, the ban that could disqualify some top defense contractors from new contracts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the acquisition implications for vendors and the Pentagon. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Defense Department has a new deadline for contractors to comply with the ban on Chinese telecommunications products and services. The department and companies will have until September 30th now. Frank Kendall is senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, former undersecretary of defense for acquisition technology and logistics. Frank, thanks very much for coming on the program. Is this a surprise to you that this deadline moves from last week to the end of the fiscal year?
0: Uh, Well, I don't know if it's a surprise, but I wish it had moved further. Um, There are a lot of problems with this statute and its implementation. So I think uh, what Ellen Lord actually has asked for, which I think is a year's delay, makes a lot more sense to me. The statute needs to be reconsidered.
1: Why so, Frank? Is it important, in your view, for these components to get out of the supply chain, or is this something that maybe is overstated?
0: Uh, no, I don't think the problems overstated. I think the implementation is flawed. Uh, I fully support the objectives of the law. I think the intent is good. Um, I'm not at this time party to the intelligence that, you know, convinced people that these particular companies were, were a problem, uh, but I'm not surprised by that. Uh, yeah, the problem with the law is that it's very vague and it's very broad uh, and it's subject to a lot of interpretation. It, it basically tells the government not to award contracts to people who are not compliant uh corporate lawyers all over the country are trying to figure out what this law actually means and what it's going to take uh to implement it and there needs to be much more clarity about that the guidance that's been put out so far the gsa put out some implementing guidance uh it doesn't really help all that much unfortunately
1: what would make what would would narrow the scope would make it less broad and what would clarify what kind of language is necessary to clarify it so that it's not vague as you stated
2: I think
0: that needs to be worked out between the department and the federal government and the Congress. Um, right now it talks about use, the term that's not very well defined, it's not defined really, uh, and which equipment it applies to. It talks about things being essential. Uh, it also talks about the degree to which you have to go examine all your supply chain to see whether they're using any prohibited equipment or not. Um, and there's that basically the current guidance says that you have to make a reasonable inquiry uh, that's not specific enough. It's something short of an audit, supposedly, but what a reasonable inquiry is isn't defined. It's in the eye of the beholder. So uh, which types of equipment specifically are included and which are not would be a good start. Um, more details about what you have to actually do to be in compliance in terms of inspections or or getting certifications from suppliers, those sorts of things. Uh, it, it needs a lot more work, and I think people should take the time to do that work Again, I applaud the intent. I don't have any problem with that at all. I just think that people need to think through the practicalities of implementation.
1: Do you have any issues with the self-certification aspects of this, Frank?
0: Um, Self-certification has some limitations, and I think it it can be used. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to put in contracts, but by itself, it's not enough. People have to check, and they have to check enough that people are, are concerned about making sure those certifications are really meaningful. Um, I think we, in general, we've had a problem with cybersecurity where we've allowed people to self-certify too much about meeting the NIST standards. And the solution to that is, to, in my mind, to do more checking and take, take action when people are not actually in compliance. And the degree of violation should dictate the, and the, uh, the strength of the action. But I think certification by itself is not enough. It can be part of an overall scheme to implement this.
1: You mentioned that the the intent of this seems to be something short of an audit. Given the gravity of the national security challenge that's here, is it possible that maybe an audit is the right thing, or is that potentially too onerous for the companies to try to comply with and still be able to execute the contracts at a level that makes sense for the government uh, financially?
0: It's asking a lot of contractors to audit their supply chain to, this, to thoroughly determine whether or not they have uh, prohibited components in their in their supply chain. That, that's a big burden to put on industry. Uh, I, I don't think that that's necessary. Um, I think they need to have enough documentation and enough uh, evidence that people have thoroughly scrubbed their systems. Uh, and I think the government should be doing audits on a case by case basis to, to check to make sure that the compliance you know indications are, are valid and accurate and then taking corrective action when that happens. Uh, you have to balance the cost of implementation here with the with the benefit that you're getting. Uh, there's some cases where, and I, I took a look at the comments people were providing. The the interim rule is out for comment right now, and generally speaking, people are concerned about uh, the definitions, what they really mean. They're not not clear enough. They're concerned about things that would have a blanket impact on things like video cameras, which are largely coming from Asia, and and are either from or include components from these companies which could be entirely banned uh, if, if it was applied. So I, th- I think a number of those concerns need to be heard. I-, I hope that in response to the comments that come in, that there'll be an additional delay and people will go back and reconsider this and maybe go renegotiate the statute with the Hill and get them to uh, modify it so that it's, it's more implementable.
1: Less than a minute left, Frank. Is there any room for nuance here in the types of equipment or does it make sense to make this a blanket ban rather than saying this type of application might be okay to use a piece of equipment from china and this type of applications obviously not
0: i think those details should be worked out they should be looked at i mean there are cases like the one i mentioned where uh it, the consequence is much more severe than is intended i think and can be mitigated by other risk mitigation measures uh if you're using security cameras for example they don't necessarily need to be connected directly to anything else in the in the in the, in the Information system that's being used. Uh, there are ways to kind of isolate them so that they're not a problem. Uh, <clears throat> things like that can be done and it should be part of, it should be allowed and at least considered as people implement the detailed uh, regulations are ultimately going to be necessary.
1: Frank Kendall, thanks very much as always. Great to see you.
0: Always going to be with you, Francis. Thank you.
1: Up next presence versus motion to advance America's interests straight ahead on government matters. Is it more important to be there or get there fast? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. The United States will withdraw troops from Germany and add more troops to its positions in Poland. The place troops are, though, may not be as important as how they move. Barry Blackman is co-founder and distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. Barry, thanks very much for coming on the program. What did you find when you looked at the locations of troops versus the speed to deployment for troops around the world?
3: We found that uh, permanent deployments of troops made very little difference when uh, we're trying to coerce another country, when we want to deter an attack or get someone to do something uh, we want them to do. What matters is the changes in our deployments. When we're moving an aircraft carrier or uh, ground forces into a region that's troubled, that gets people's attention. The troops that are there already are kind of part of the wallpaper, you know. They're accepted. Oh yeah, the United States has 10,000 troops in Germany or whatever it is. But if the United States adds uh, brigade, combat team, for example into germany when the russians were making some threats to eastern europe that would make a difference or if we move them into poland for example
1: you and your uh, colleague james siebens former colleague uh, melanie sisson and you writing in breaking defense stimson center recently completed an analysis of more than a hundred events since the end of the cold war so this is a data-based analysis and not just an observational based analysis am i on the right track barry
3: Yes, you're right. We did a very um, exhaustive search of all the incidents uh, involving U.S. Armed Forces since the end of the Cold War. And we found more than a hundred times when the U.S. was trying to coerce another country, when we were trying to get a decision maker to do something or not to do something. And, uh, but we didn't want to go to war with them. We wanted to persuade them by demonstrating our resolve. Hey, we're serious about this. We don't want you to move into Ukraine or whatever the situation was. And we found, uh, surprisingly, even in the early days when we were supreme militarily, our success record wasn't that great. Something like 50%, 50% of the times we were successful. and the times we were most successful was when we backed up our words with the movement of forces. Sometimes we would move an amphibious group, marine group, through into the region. That was very effective. Or an aircraft carrier. Or when we put troops on the ground and they conducted exercises with an allied nation and then took them out again. They don't, they don't have to live there with their families and so forth. They have to just go in, show our capabilities, familiarize themselves with the terrain, work with the ally, and then come back home. So, And that gets, that gets people's attention. They say, look, the US is serious. They're willing to put more lives at risk uh, to, to achieve their aims here.
1: Barry, you and your colleagues write in Breaking Defense. During a crisis, moving new forces into the region does significantly increase the chance that an adversary will back down. But the number of troops, aircraft, and ships already in the region prior to a crisis had no impact on the outcome. Is it the case, did you find that it was the case, though, that having a presence in an area helps the military move resources to, an, to in an organization faster? Or is it the actual movement of itself, regardless of where they started out, that that does the trick?
3: Well, having troops there has some advantages that uh, familiarizes them with the terrain and uh, they can build facilities. But we believe that we'd be better off spending money to improve the logistical hubs, the airfields, the railroads, the ports, rather than spending the money to keep troops and typically their families in the region on a permanent basis. That's very expensive, you know, because American troops typically in Europe particularly or in Korea, Japan, uh, they live with their families, and that means schools, it means PXs, the whole infrastructure that goes like a base, in the United States, so it's expensive to keep, and we'd be better off spending that money, moving them in, just the troops themselves, conducting an exercise. They gain the same familiarity with the region, uh, they gain the same knowledge of the ally they'll be fighting with, and uh, then they could come home. and uh, you know live their lives at fort hood or wherever they might be based
1: we just have a couple of minutes left barry is that infrastructure to make that movement possible or make it work better the biggest gap do you think between what we have now and what we would need to realize the vision that you and your colleagues lay out
3: yes yes it is we've uh, we've let it deteriorate since the cold war ended you know at one time we had half a million troops uh in europe and Then it came down to 300,000 and then 50,000 or so. But um, along with taking the troops out, we let the facilities deteriorate. And the Allies, the Germans, have not been spending the money to uh, keep them up either. And the countries in Eastern Europe, the ones which are most threatened, the Baltic states and Poland, uh, they could well invest in uh, facilities so that we could get there quicker. We've found some uh, constraints when we tried to uh, move um, aircraft fighter squadrons in, for example. There wasn't the support facilities at the airfields there. They're not uh, used to the kinds of things that, that the U.S. forces need.
1: Barry Blackman, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you.
3: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it.
0: I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV.